Well, this morning we are continuing our series. We've been finishing up our series in tune. What does it mean to get in tune with God? And specifically, how do we put certain patterns or habits in the background of our life, like a rhythm, like a drumbeat, that we, we establish our life based on that rhythm? And I am the perfect person not to talk about that <laughs> because uh, I'm like Steve Martin from The Jerk. You know, I just can't quite ever hit the beat as the team tells me. So I thought we'd ask somebody who knows something about rhythm. And if you've never seen Kenny um, write a song in real time, Kenny tells me I'm in for a real treat, so that's always a scary thing. But um, Kenny's going to show us what? how he can become... <laughs> I haven't heard whatever's coming, so it's a little scary. But <laughs> tell us a little bit about when you're a band member, how do you keep rhythm? And what's kind of the secret to doing that? And you've got kind of a cool thing that lets you record a, a live studio song live right here. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, like in a band situation, we always have a drummer. And the drummer kind of holds the fort down. So hopefully your drummer's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first 20 of 40 years of playing out in my career, I was always in a band. Okay. So always had that locked-in tempo. And um, when I started playing solo about 20 years ago, I, uh, I thought I was playing fine, uh -huh. and I didn't have that rhythm, but I thought, oh, I'm doing great. And then Todd, our, our audio guy, he has, uh, had a studio back in the day, and he, he would call me up to do sessions for people making an album. And I'd get in there, and there'd be a click track, and I'm like, mm. <laughs> You'd be too fast or too slow I, or not staying on. I would yeah. think I was locking in, and he's going, you need to listen to that again. I'm like, I'm way out. I had no time. So I heard about looping, and looping gave me the ability to record stuff as I play it, anything that goes through my guitar, or, or hey, 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 anything that can go through my guitar, I could record and make a, a digital loop. So and, you can actually record myself. something, it keeps playing, and then you keep stacking on top of it. That's what sure. looping means. All right, so show us so, what that, that so looks like. Like I could just do a beat. No hands, Mom. <laughs> All right. If I want to, I can add to that. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. And then if I wanted to, I could play a little chord progression. That's locked. I'm following its tempo. Mm -hmm. So I could make up a little song if you like. I don't know if I like it or not. I don't we'll know see. why you're so nervous. Some verses. Some say that Chad is cool. I'm 
not sure that it's true. <laughs> I've seen him dance. He used to wear high water pants. <laughs> Chad's cool. Oh no, he's not. <laughs> Chad's cool. He claps on one and three instead of two and four. Loves watching AGT. Weird Al's his favorite music star. Chad's cool. It's true. It's true. No, he's not. <laughs> Chad's cool. Oh, I forgot that. Chad's cool. He is my boss, so Chad's cool. That's all I've got, that so Chad's so Don't clap for this. Don't encourage that. Don't encourage that. Don't encourage that. Man, if you're tuning in for the first time, you're going to think this is a cult where they sing songs to me. We don't do this every week, and uh, I'll be right back. I need to renegotiate his contract before we continue. <laughs> so if you never heard Kenny, when, I, when we brainstormed this, I said, let's do like Fragile by Peter Gabriel. He said, no, I got something original for you. Yeah, so, so that was great. But this idea that there's this rhythm behind that allows us to do many things, that what allows you to sink all those different layers on top of each other is that there's something underneath. There's something moving in the background that puts it all together. So in our series each week, we've looked at kind of these ancient dusty words. And we brought them to life, blasphemy and submission and, and honor. And today we're going to talk about duty. He said duty, not that duty, duty. And the sense of duty... I heard a hundred years ago that in a sermon you would hear the word duty like 20 or 30 times. And now you don't hear a, a sermon on, on duty and honor like hardly ever. So I want to look at that word and how it can create the rhythm in our background, like a, like a backbeat that drives us and helps us with the disciplines we need for other things in our life. I want to define it this way with our music metaphor. Duty is playing and living according to the beat of another drum. Now I want to contrast the Bible's unique sense of rhythm and grace compared to maybe the typical talk you might hear on honor and duty. To do that, I want to talk about two different beats. The one that we're kind of born with, that we love but we can't live up to, and like me and Steve Martin, we can't quite hit the beat, though we know it's good. And another beat that God gives us that really motivates and transforms everything as a rhythm in our life. The first beat is the... <laughs> Kind of the idea that you need to do what you should. The do what you should beat. And this is something built into all is that we know how we should act. Right? We know the golden rule. We know what other people should or should not do. We know what we should or should not do. But the problem is we can't live up to our own standards, our own definitions of what it means to do our duty and to do the right thing. And I don't think anyone knew this better than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a scholar at Oxford, an atheist. He loved ancient stories. He wasn't a believer in God, Jesus, or the Bible. But he met J.R. Tolkien, and they became best friends. And they loved writing stories and telling stories and reading ancient literature. J.R. Tolkien was a believer in God, the Bible, and Jesus. And he began to describe to C.S. Lewis that there is fundamental truths deep underneath the human soul that could be discovered. And it pointed us to our need to someone to forgive us and someone to lead us. And C.S. Lewis, over years of friendship, began to think about this and began to wrestle with this. And he eventually became a follower of Jesus and a follower of God. He began to write literature like the Chronicles of Narnia or Silent Planet or The Great Divorce, philosophy and literature. 
And even if you've read the Narnia series, he talks about the deeper magic. And the deeper magic was the metaphor he gave for this, this underneath, underneath your behavior kind of sense that there's something we should do. This beat in every human heart that tells us that we have a duty to follow certain commandments and certain precepts. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes about this. Here's how he says it. The laws of nature, as applied to stones or trees, may only mean what nature in fact does. But if you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it's a different matter. That law certainly does not mean what human beings in fact do. None of them obey it completely. The law of gravity tells you that stones do what stones do if you drop them, but the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do but do not. What he's saying is gravity, scientifically, you drop something in the Earth's atmosphere, it'll fall. When you talk about the duty or the moral behavior of what a human ought to do, you say humans ought to be kind. Everybody would say, yeah, humans ought to be kind. Then you say, well, are humans kind? Well, not most of the time. Humans ought to be generous. Are they generous? Well, they're generous to themselves. Do they give everybody else the benefit of the doubt the way they give it to themselves? Well, no. I know that people shouldn't gossip. I don't like when people gossip. People should not gossip. That's a good thing. You should do your duty and not gossip. Because I don't like when people gossip about me or my family. And the next thing you find yourself is gossiping about somebody else. You don't do the very thing you know you should do. So how do we solve this thing? Well, the book of Romans discusses this problem that we know what we ought to do or what we should do, but we also know that we're incapable of doing it. So the law or the duty that tells us to do it is good, but it brings out our inability to actually accomplish it. Here's what it says in Romans. It says, moreover, the law entered, the golden rule, the Ten Commandments, whatever you want to put the law in there. It entered, but the problem is the more you find out what you should do, the more the offense abounds, the more you realize I'm incapable of meeting it. And this is kind of a famous phrase. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I want to do, or what I will to do, what I promise to do, I don't practice that thing. And what I hate, I promise not to do, I know it's wrong, I ought not, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good, which is kind of his real wordy way of saying, I know the right thing to do, but every time I try and do it, I'm equally capable of breaking it as I am to keeping it. So how do we solve this? Do we just solve it by trying harder to do our duty? Or is there another beat besides the I do what I ought behind our life that could motivate us differently? Well, I want to suggest there's another beat, another sense of duty or honor that can drive us. It's the duty of grace. It's do as was done for me beat. When you realize that the law has been accomplished for you, that the law is good, you should be doing those things, and you don't meet those things, and somebody forgave you despite that fact, someone lived the life you should have lived, Jesus, and he gives you or credits to you his account, it changes what happens inside you. It's going to take me a little bit to develop that. To start, I want to give you kind of an obscure idea from the book of Philippians. And we'll kind of develop this. Paul's writing a letter to the, a group of people living in Philippi. And as he's talking to them, he says, Paul and Timothy, we are bondservants of Jesus Christ. And then he says to all these normal people living in Philippi, to the saints living in Philippi. 
He says, it's capable, you're capable of being a saint in this lifehood, not based on what you do for God, but based on what he did for you. And when you understand you're a saint, you become a bondservant. And this is a really weird word. So let me explain a bondservant for a second. A bondservant in the Greek-Roman world was someone who was enslaved. But I think for many of us, when we think of someone enslaved, you know, we think of maybe a prisoner, someone who's in jail. And let's see, let's draw him like this, like this. Put the striped hat on, put his little outfit, striped, of course, he's a prisoner. Hand, hand, leg, leg. And we think of like somebody in slavery, somebody who's enslaved or they're shackled to maybe a big ball and chain, all right? And they were sold into slavery and things like that. And that's the metaphor we think of. But he's using the metaphor. He says, Paul, Timothy, and I are bondservants. We are slaves to Jesus. Like, well, Chad, this doesn't sound very great. Why would I want that? Well, it's not the metaphor of somebody who was, you know, had a ball and chain on them. It was more the metaphor of an indentured servant. So the idea he's getting at here is a little bit different than what our culture thinks of when we think of slavery. They were actually indentured servants who owed a certain amount of money, and they couldn't pay it. So they sold themselves into uh, seven years, ten years to pay off their debt. And so they worked at it. They know they should pay off their debt. They know they need to pay off their debt, but they couldn't pay off their debt. However, the master's not even the right term. Better to say their boss, who they were working off the debt with, Many times they would treat them incredibly well, treat them like members of the family. They would be kind to them. They would love them. And some of them would even pay off the debt early. And so your debt would be paid off prior to you paying it off. You're now a free man in the Roman Greek society because they had a very consistent caste system. You went from being an indentured servant to being free. And what's interesting is, put an ear on this guy here. When you became an indentured servant, you could tell because of what they did with their ears. We'll give them a big ear here you would actually punch your ear with a certain punch hole. And when you did that, it was saying, I am a bond servant. I have paid off my debt, but I am choosing to stay with my boss, stay with my master. I now don't have to. I don't ought to. I now want to stay with this family. Because they've been so caring, so loving. I'm a member of the family. They pay debt I couldn't pay. I'm living the life I want to live. So I am a bondservant. I'm going to do my duty, not because I have to. I'm not shackled to it. Not because I'm supposed to, but because I want to. And this idea becomes a sense of duty that is driven by gratitude and grace and an overwhelming sense of what someone did for you. So that's what we're talking about today. How can you be driven by a different beat? The beat of want to, not have to. Not I ought or I should, but I could. That's what we're going to dive in together. So let's look at those together. The first thing we're going to look at is this key, like this key we can do that, that duty, the way the Bible describes it, this grace-driven duty can move you from ought to to want to. Man, I want to please somebody who freed me. I want to please somebody who paid debt I couldn't pay, who made me right when I couldn't make myself right, who accepts me even though I can't even do what I know I should do. Duty moves you from ought to to want to. So think of it again like a drum. 
So imagine the beat of a drum with two drumsticks. And over here is the should drumstick. And over here is the could drumstick. Or maybe over here is the ought to, and over here is the want to. In some sense, when you live according to the beat of a drum, there's a sense in which you're doing your duty. You don't necessarily want to do it or feel like doing whatever it is today, but you're letting that drum beat drive you. And often in movies, you'll see in military uh, strategizing, you'll see the army using a, a, a drum to communicate because it was very loud and could be used to communicate. It's not a lot of evidence that maybe the, the Greeks and Romans used that, or certainly not the Romans, but all through history, r- the, the drums have been used to kind of drive commands and drive you forward. I want to suggest that C.S. Lewis discovered that all of us are driven by the should, but the problem is you never want to. You just always live under either pride and arrogance, I did everything I should, and you get arrogance, or fear and shame, I didn't do everything I should. So what the Bible's offering is a chance to move from the should to the could, from the ought to to the want to. Now, how does he do that, or how does it offer that? Well, here's what it says in the scriptures. There's a guy named Solomon who's writing. And he says, how do you discover what the meaning and purpose of life is? So he's going through a midlife crisis. And in the middle of this midlife crisis, he has tried it all. He has built cities. He has amassed wealth. He has like 600 wives and 500 concubines, and this is not prescriptive of what we should do. This is him kind of going off the rails. And after trying it all, doing what he should, not doing what he should, none of it satisfied his soul. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, he kind of says, I tried this, tried this, tried this, broke this, obeyed this. The good stuff didn't meet me, my needs. The bad stuff didn't meet my needs. And here's his conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God. Have awe for God. This word fear is a really sense that it's almost like to be awe-inspired might be a better translation of the Hebrew. Be awe-inspired by God. Keep his commandments. There's something good about those commandments. For this is man's all. Another translation says this is the whole duty of man. All right, well, what are you saying? The whole duty of man is to recognize that there is something that we need to do, but also to acknowledge that we can't do it. And so instead, we look to God and we say, okay, instead of trying to just do what he says, can I trust that he knows best? All right, you've always had, we've all had people who've told us what to do, and we're like, well, I don't want to do it. In fact, I'm the kind of person, the minute you put up a stay off the grass sign, I wasn't even thinking about stepping on the grass. But now that I see it, who says? What are the consequences? So the law is good, but it brings out something in me that's bad. What if instead you put that sign there and I say, hey, I want you to know, Chad, someone you trust put that sign there. Okay? Someone who cares about you, someone who knows your strengths and weaknesses. So you may not like the fact that you're not supposed to get on the grass, but did you know that your dad put that there? Hmm, I've got a great relationship with my dad. And my dad's kind of a maverick who likes breaking rules too. So if my dad put that rule there, he's got a good reason for putting it there. And I may not understand it, but I'm going to trust my dad's heart. I'm so awe-filled with the respect for my dad and that he wants what's best for me. I now want to obey it because I know my dad's heart. Rather than just, I can do whatever I want. Who, Who made you boss? Right? That's the idea. So there are many people throughout time who've tried things like Solomon... And they found that this rhythm of trusting God's heart 
and knowing that he loves you enough to forgive you, to pay your debt, that became the new beat or the motivator to change the dynamic of your relationship to the Ten Commandments or to the, the Golden Rule. One of them was uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, who was a really strong, committed Christian. And what you may not know about Bach is he lost both of his parents when he was 10 years old. And imagine grieving at 10 years old, losing both your parents. Despite that grief, he didn't give up on God. He found God to be a source of healing and inspiration and, and help. He became the choir director at his church at age 17. He was so phenomenal as a musician that he got put in charge of the whole program and he started writing an original cantata once a month, writing it, orchestrating it, and performing it once a month. His career continues to take off. He got to the point where he, this guy was so brilliant, he began to write, perform, and orchestrate a new cantata every week for multiple years. And if you look at the sheet music on one of Bach's compositions, it always has a JJ at the top, which in German stood for help me Jesus. So it doesn't translate into English, it'd be like HJ for us. But JJ, help me Jesus. Help me to do my best. I know you've loved me. I know you've forgiven me. I know the right thing to do, but I know I need to be rescued from my inability to do that. But I want to do my best music and my best art, but I need your help. The sense of humility. Then if you look at the end of every piece of music that Bach wrote, it says SDG, which is to the glory of God in his language. And now that I've got it all done, now it's all complete. It's not about me and what I need. I want to give credit to God. In fact, many people call... Bach, the fifth witness, Matthew, books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and that Bach's music became the fifth testimony to finding the music or the rhythm underneath your life. What is he saying? He's saying, I found something in Jesus saving me and living my life for the glory of God. It was like a different beat. I didn't give up the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule, but I sensed that there was some kind of motivation to want to that came when I began to realize I needed saved from my inability to, 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 to meet the shoulds and yet to live not for self but for the glory of God. Now what's the second key? The second key to this rhythm is that duty, understanding that rhythm and that motivation and trusting your father's heart, being awe-filled that he knows what's best for you, it moves you from what you must do to what you may do. It's the same idea. So in this idea, Think of it this way. Um, let's draw this guy. Let's see. I'll draw him here. And put a little hair here. Do an ear. He's sweating. He's got a hat. And uh, let's see. Here's his nose, his mouth. Blowing really, really hard. And let's see, let me have him blow maybe the morning bugle. Right, here's his hands, he's holding on. Here it is. So this is Beetle Bailey, by the way, if you don't remember him from the comics. That's my best shot at Beetle Bailey, so I haven't had a Beetle Bailey reference in a while. So he's going to use a metaphor in the New Testament of duty and honor, and he's going to reference it to the idea of being in the army. 
And again, those who are Christians in the early days, you saw the Roman army going through all the time. But he uses this idea of the army as a metaphor for how to do your duty. But look at how he starts it. This is from Paul. If you want to move from, from must what you must do to what you may do, he says, therefore, my son, be strong in commandments, be strong in honor. No, he says, be strong in grace. Grace is knowing you can't keep the commandments, but you should. But knowing that God kept the commandments for you and forgave you, therefore you want to please him, not that you have to please him. Here's how he explains it with a, a metaphor. He says, be strong in the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're going to go through tough stuff. No one engages in warfare and tangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please the one who enlisted him as soldier. So if you realize what God did for you, he enlisted you into grace, he forgave you, he gave you riches, he's given you eternal life. When you realize he's enlisted you into this brand new life of purpose, you say, you know what, I want to please somebody who is so generous to me. I want to please somebody who paid my debt. I want to please somebody who's forgiven me. And therefore, what does a person who's engaged in the army do? Right? You no longer entangle yourself in civilian matters because your duty and honor is to be part of this life. When you realize you want to please God, you see temptation in things. You say, you know what? I don't want to engage in those things because those things are not what I'm called to. I trust my, my, my enlister not to put me in charge of that, not to, not to get entangled in that. So you move from must, what I must do, what I have to do, I may do it. I want to do it. I chose to enlist in the army. I chose to have this life. I know it's going to come with sacrifices. I know it's going to come with challenges. But I believe the one who enlisted me has the best life for me. And this military idea is where we often think of when we think of the, the concept of duty. But again, he's saying the duty is doing the right thing. But it's also being, being strong in grace. It's that grace piece that moves you from must to may. I certainly saw that in my family. Both my father and my father-in-law were part of the draft for Vietnam. And both had a very different experience. I'll start with my dad. My dad got out of college and he could not wait to have a family. He could not wait to start his career. And he got drafted. And he didn't want to go. And my grandfather really, really struggled with that because he had served as a Marine. He'd fought in World War II. He just couldn't believe that my dad didn't want to do his duty. And my dad's like, well, I just don't understand why we're there, what the purpose is. I don't get the reason for it, and therefore I'm not committed to it. But he got drafted, and yet he was a high jumper. And as he headed into the draft, he had just hurt his knee doing used to do the old western roll and so he hurt his knee so he goes in for the draft and sure enough they rejected my dad because of his knee and so he wasn't able to do his duty because of he'd been entangled in <laughs> civilian life because he damaged himself another way now contrast that with my father-in-law he didn't get drafted for vietnam he enlisted in vietnam so i heard this just several years ago i didn't know the story i said well butch tell me about vietnam and kind of what happened and how you got in there? When were you drafted? He said, well, I didn't draft, I enlisted. I said, I don't know that I've ever talked to somebody who's enlisted in Vietnam. I said, tell me about that. He said, I was so committed that Christ gave his life for me 
My father fought to, for the we could have freedoms. I wanted to fight for other people's freedoms. I didn't totally understand what was going on, but I knew that if I could give my life for others to defend my family, defend my future relatives, I wanted to do it. Like, man, that's incredible. He says, so I enlisted, and I went through the kind of whole testing process, and they found I had great mechanical skills, so they put me way out of the line of fire. And so my job was to basically fix tanks and fix things. He says, and I said, no way. Like, you said, what? He said, I said, no way. You put me on the front lines where it's danger. I want to be where the most dangerous place is. I want to make sure that I'm not safe if other people are fighting for freedom. I said, Butch, that is unbelievable. The sense of honor the sense of courage, the sense of other-centeredness, that you could have been safe and didn't choose it. He looked at me and says, well, I didn't say I was very smart. I said, well, I didn't affirm you for being very smart. I affirmed you for being courageous and honorable. And you know, this many years later, he's got survivor's guilt because everyone in his platoon was killed but him one time during one of the battles because he was fixing a, um, fixing a tank. And years of post-traumatic syndrome that he had to get you know, help with. But what a sense of duty. And that duty was motivated by trusting that he wanted to do unto others what had been done for him. Fighting for freedom. We other people fought for freedom for him. And a sense that he would give his life for others because Jesus had given his life for him. Powerful. He had moved from what I must do to what I may do. I want to engage in this because I believe that I'm fighting for other people and it matters. So I may do this. I'm choosing to do this. And I didn't get drafted. In one sense, God enlisted him because he wanted to do unto others the way God had done unto him. Hmm, pretty powerful. Third thing. So we move from this idea of the should to the could and this metaphor of kind of the, the enlisting in the army, the kind of call of... The third aspect is duty moves us from a driving beat to a back beat. And I think this is where we come back to C.S. Lewis. If you listen to music, sometimes there's a driving beat. You know, the, the, the beat is so loud, the bass is so loud, it's just driving the whole song. And that's what happens when shoulds because become part of your life. You should, you should, you should, you should, but I can't, but I can't, but I can't, but I can't. I always say, you know, you should all over yourself, right? You should do this. And you do this to your spouse, you do this to your kids. You should do this, but I don't want to do this. Well, you should. Well, you, I don't want to. Well, you should. Well, I tried and it didn't. And so you say, well, I should do this and I didn't. And so then you just should, 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 should. And eventually you either get proud and arrogant because you did everything you should, or you get shame and you give up because you're like, well, why bother? What grace allows you to do is to take this driving beat that drives you to do things that you can't accomplish, and it moves it to a backbeat. Because Christ accomplished it for you, it's still important. It's still a rhythm that sets your patterns in life. But you also know in some sense you can't keep the law. He kept it for you. So it, it takes away the requirements of the law that you have to, and now you can want to. Hey, I messed up again. Thank you for forgiving me already for that. I want to please you because I trust your heart. And duty moves this driving beat to a backbeat. It's in the background. It's important, but it's no longer the driver. Think of it like a metronome as we started the service today. We need something to set the tone for our life. And the Bible calls these spiritual disciplines. These are these spiritual habits. Habits of prayer. And it's not like the days you don't pray, oh, I'm a terrible Christian, oh, I'm a terrible person. And the days you do pray, oh, well, I'm a great person. That's not what spiritual disciplines are. It's the duty of putting these rhythms in place. I put myself in a place I can hear from God. You're going to see me not be able to keep time here. And then Kenny's going to write a song about me. Um, 
prayer. It's, it's putting yourself in a place that you can reconnect with God. It's financial giving, putting yourself in a place where you're demonstrating the grace of God. It's simplicity, not always wanting more. There's these spiritual habits over time that create a rhythm in your life. Not because God loves you more when you do the right thing or loves you less when you do less of it. It's more like, God, I want to put myself in a place that I can hear the rhythms from you. Because I have a tendency, God, to trick myself into doing things that aren't good for me, thinking they're the right things for me and ending up in a ditch. So I'm going to read the Bible because I need to trust that you know what's best for me. And he's daily enlisting of his grace through prayer and Bible study and hearing from him create a, a behind-the-scenes rhythm that allows me to walk through life. In fact, here's what it says in the Bible about that. Jesus is telling a story one day, and his disciples say, we want to have more faith. How can we get more faith? He says, well, let me tell you a story. Which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, shall say to him when he has come in from the field, hey, come on at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? So before we go on, let me kind of explain that. He says, you're paying this person. You've put this person up. You've generously provided this person's life. You've now come in from work, and you sit down, and the person's job is to prepare something for you. Do you say to the servant, you eat first, and then I will have my meal? Or do you say first, hey, I'm going to eat my meal because that's what I pay you to do, and then I want you to have your meal? Which seems so backward. Like, wouldn't you say, Jesus, no, are you supposed to serve others? Or what's going on? Let me keep going. We'll explain it. He says, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? They did their duty. Jesus says, I think not. You're not going to thank him. So likewise you, so he says you're the, the main subject of this parable, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. What a weird story. So let's start with the word unprofitable. When you realize, back to my indentured servant, you can't pay your own debt, and someone says, I will hire you, and I will forgive you your debt, make a way for you to pay off your debt, then you say, oh my goodness, why would I not want to please the person who freed me from a life of, of indentured fortitude? Why would I not want to please? Oh my goodness, I can't wait to serve the master who freed me, who helped me. He said, but what happens is that many times you guys are starting to act like God owes me. God enlisted you, God forgave you, God helped you, and now you're kind of coming to God in prayer and saying, well, God, you owe me. Look what a good person I am. God, you owe me. And you're starting to think that God's there to serve you rather than realizing that the purpose of life is for you to serve God. So he says, if you want to know how to increase your faith, realize you're an unprofitable servant. You couldn't pay off your own debt before God. And to realize your duty, your, your proper response to God is to live in thanksgiving to him. That's his idea. What if you and I, every day, start thinking about, is it God's duty to love and serve me? You're not giving me good enough circumstances. Or is it my job to serve him? See the difference? There's both a beat. One's a driving beat. God, you ought to do what you want to do. And if you don't, then you know, you're not the right God. Another one is, God, I don't always understand. But the same God who paid off my debt, the same God who freed me, the same God who, who, who gave me this life, 
man, I can't wait to serve you, even if it means some hardship at times, even if it means some difficulty at times. So that's the idea he's getting at. Duty is playing and living to the beat of another drum. It, it's this sense that you and I can understand what God's done for us what he's forgiven us for, and we get to that want to, I want to serve him, I want to help him, I, I want to say thanks to him, I trust his way, his commands are the good way, they're not just some arbitrary list of rules. Remember we started, we'll put it up on the screen. Duty is playing and living to the beat of another drum. And that's why Jesus kind of changed your relationship to the shoulds. You get to the place you say, I want to do my duty because God went above the call of duty for me. If he was willing to die for me and everything I did wrong, man, I don't always like what he's asked me to do, but I trust him. He took a bullet for me. And if anyone would send their only son to die on a cross for me, I don't fully understand why that sign is there or why that sign is there, but I trust somebody who would do that for me. So here's my encouragement to you. Every day, re-enlist yourself. Reenlist yourself daily in performing your duties for God by reflecting daily on how God performed his duty for you. You might say, well, I'm not sure I believe Jesus did anything or God came to earth. Well, maybe it's time to maybe check in the Bible. Reenlist yourself daily. I'm going to read the Bible and figure out what God says he did for me. And you're going to look into that. And just kind of explore. Did God really go above the call of duty like it says in the Bible? Is that really true? Others of us, it's going to be real practical. You know God forgave you, but you don't want to forgive others. And enlisting yourself daily saying, oh, the right thing to do is to forgive my enemies, forgive people who've hurt me. But I don't want to. But the beat of grace is if God forgave me, how could I not forgive others? And I had one of those this weekend. I've told many of you the story that over the last couple of years, uh, last 12, 15 years, I've not talked to my sister-in-law through a whole series of events. And so this weekend, I drove down to my parents' house to celebrate their 50th anniversary. It's the first time we've talked in 12 years. And part of me was bracing for impact. Part of me was like, mm, I don't really want to do this. But on behalf of my parents, I wanted to be there. And I had reconciled with my brother five or six years ago. So I could do my duty to forgive. That was not enough motivation. Maybe it is for you. But you know, when I realized that God forgave me of far less than whatever it is that happened 12 years ago, how could I not be open to repair? How could I not be open to forgive? Because whatever I forgive or whatever grace I extend is going to be nothing compared to the grace God extends for me. And so we had a great weekend. And for the first time in 12 years, my parents, we took them out to dinner. And it was just the original five. My brother, who I hadn't talked to for five years, and we reconciled. My sister we've been fine and myself and my parents and we just sat around the table at our 50th and we just at their 50th and we just told stories thanking them for 50 years of marriage modeling humility doing their duty to stay with each other during good times and bad and allowing the grace of God through Jesus to motivate them and it was such a sweet sweet time challenging but the duty of grace the song of God behind the scenes was what allowed me in real practical ways, to forgive, to reconcile, and to choose joy. And I want that song to play in the background of your life as well. Let's listen.